0: Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk, AM 1150, here on a beautiful, sunny, yet cold day here in Seattle. What a fine day to take your dog for a walk. Yeah, but bundle up. Yes. Because it is quite chilly. Might be time if you have a little dog or a dog with uh, very little fur or body fat, might be time to put that jacket on. Or the doggy cardigan. That's right. (laughs) Uh, so I have uh, we have a great interview today. First, before we talk with Dr. Mark Beckoff about his new book, "Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed," I do want to announce a couple of events that we have coming up here in the next two weeks. The first one is a both both events are benefiting the A Help Project, which is a nonprofit organization here in King. King County area that supports people and their pets around the end of life process. So um, animals as they are nearing their end of life, helping to support people to have that be as smooth and graceful of a process as possible. Um, And then also through the grief process as well. So it's an organization that I'm on the board of directors for. And we have a couple of events coming up. Uh, The first one is this Saturday night from six to ten pm. at Neighbors Nightclub, it's a women's dance night, and uh, it's a really fun night just to go out, uh, bring your girlfriends out and go dancing. and uh, it's great music, pop music and um, and we'll be uh, a help project will be there um, answering questions for people, and also uh, we'll, we'll be doing a 5050 raffle to raise money to support the organization. And then I also have an event coming up on December 16th. Uh, I've been talking about this one for a few weeks now. It's called Heart to Heart, and it's with um, Rainbow Bridge Hearts, which is a local company that makes these really beautiful glass-blown hearts with a swirl of your pet's ashes actually in blown into the heart um, or made into the heart. Uh, they also have a couple other products. They have a sphere, and they also have a tea lamp that they do All can be done with your pet's ashes. And um, Brandy Algren, the editor of City Dog Magazine, and I are um, going on December 16th to the studio, which is one of their production days, and we're having hearts made for our dogs who have both passed away. My dog, Chewy, who passed over four years ago, and Brandy's dog, Scout, who passed within this last year. Um, Both of those dogs inspired us um, to—were a big part of inspiring us to do what we do professionally— And we are um, memorializing them, and we're inviting anybody in the community who wants to have a heart or tea lamp or sphere made with their pet's ashes to come and join us. They're actually going to be being made while we're there. Um, It's in Fremont, Monday, December 16th. So you can actually watch your heart or whatever other piece you decide to get um, be made with your pet's ashes, and they're really beautiful. And I know a lot of people share their experience, that was my experience, is that I've had these ashes for, you know, over four years just in an urn in my office, and I never really knew what to do with them. And as soon as I saw these um, products, I just knew that it was perfect uh, for Chewy, um, and just as a way to symbolize him and, and make him into something um, just beautiful to look at, um, rather than just the urn. So. For more information or if you want to sign up for this and join us for this event and have a heart made for your pet, um, you can contact Rainbow Bridge Hearts at 206-725-7095 or you can email them at rainbowbridgehearts at gmail.com. And just so you know, this isn't something that you can just show up on the 16th with your ashes. They need, there's some coordinating that needs to happen um, and I believe that needs to happen by this Monday, uh, the 9th. So um, you want to get on it if, if you want to join in. We have limited space. It's going to be a really wonderful event. The Help Project will be there, and we'll be raising money for them. And I can't wait to have my heart made with, with my boy's ashes. So join us there if you have any questions. Rainbowbridgehearts at gmail.com or call two zero six seven two five seven zero nine five. And now on to Dr. Mark Beckoff, who I had on the show several months ago this summer um, in preparation for the SPARKS Conference, Society for the Promotion of Applied Canine Science, uh, about his book, uh, The Emotional Lives of Animals. And now we're talking about why dogs hump and bees get depressed. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Beckoff.
1: Thanks, Julie. It's great to be here.
0: And you're in Colorado, yes?
1: I am in Boulder, Colorado, yep.
0: With a lot of snow around you, it sounds like um it's only
1: about six inches, but mm. it's about eight degrees and' it's supposed to go sub zero for the next five nights. oh boy, that's okay. It'll be sunny tomorrow, and the sun here is very warming,
0: yeah, so. well, very nice. um well, I've enjoyed what I've read so far. I'm about halfway through your book, and it was funny. I was you know reading through it and underlining and noting pages and And, uh, you know, it's a collection of essays about all sorts of different topics, Um, a lot of those dog-related and some of them related to other animals. Um, And then you mentioned the D word and I was like, oh boy, we're going to start out with this one (laughs) because you talk about dominance. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, The D word. (laughs) So, in you know, in my field with training and behavior, this is something that I am in conversation with a lot with people um, with their, you know, about their dogs and really clarifying for people, you know, what does it, what does it mean? How does it pertain to your dog? You know what do you need to do? What do you not need to to worry about regarding dominance? And you you know really address this as well. Um, so I'd love to just start off with this topic because it's a doozy in the world of of, uh, of dogs <laughs> and understanding. You know what makes dogs tick. There's a lot of different um, a lot of different perspectives on it, and yours being one where you have. Uh, you know, a lot of really scientific information to back up your opinions. So tell us a little bit about what you found out or what your views are about dogs and dominance.
1: Sure. Well, um, it's a great place to start. Excuse me. It's been contentious. Um, You know, as an ethologist or, you know, student of animal behavior, there's no doubt, you know, that I and many other researchers have observed what we would call dominance behavior, you know, or dominance in other animals. But I think my my reading of the way it's been used in you know people call it dog training I like to call it dog teaching or dog learning I think it's just been misunderstood and misused and maybe in some ways the easiest way to say it is that animals can control the movements of other animals and that would be a form of dominance it doesn't always mean Fighting It doesn't always mean, you know, aggression and submission. Um, dominance, you could see food dominance, and then you could see dominance, you know, with a stick. You know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Um, you can see situational dominance. You can see dominance that um, can change. Uh, it's called, you know, the residence effect. You can see a dog or another animal who's dominant on their own home range territory or at their home, but not when they're off their own turf. Mm -hmm. So the point that I'm trying to make, and I I think it's a point that most ethologists, if not all ethologists would make, is that dominance is a very complex topic, but it would be wrong, as some people claim, that dominance does not exist. It does exist. It's why wolf packs very well, if you will. It's it's why you know individuals know their place in the in a pack, and they do very well.
0: Yeah, and you said a word that I say a lot to my clients in conversation, and really trying to, to really have them understand this in a way that's going to apply to their relationship with their dog, and and that's control. Mm-hmm. And that to me is what's important. Is do you have? Do you have control when you want it, or do you have respect established? And I think respect is really a two-way street. If we want to establish that our dogs respect us, we also need to respect them in doing so. But the control factor is really key, and I think it's like a lot of times people, you know, because people read stuff. There's so much information out there, I mean, and then they end up just more confused afterwards, and it's like, well— you know, okay, well, we eat first, and I try to go through doorways first, and, you know, they sort of list off all of these things that they think is what really mean dominance to a dog. And it's like, if you just have control when you want it, mostly, you don't need to worry about, it's not like your dog is watching and like, oh, you know, I ate first, I'm dominant, I'm in charge. Like,
1: (laughs) No and and you're right and that's exactly right that people just confuse it because cuz the word dominance is a, it's a loaded word mm-hmm. in you know the human literature so I think what you just said is great you know like I live in the mountains outside of Colorado and I've lived with dogs I've wanted to make sure that they were safe that they didn't you know, go venture in different places because there were bears right. or cougars, yeah. uh, an occasional car, car. So, you know, I might yell, Jethro, you know, um, no, don't go there, um, you know, or whatever I would do, call him back and give him a treat. That's not a form of dominance. It's a form of it's actually a form of love. I yeah. mean, I'm controlling his behavior because I don't want him confronting a, a bear or a cougar or a car. Yeah. And, and, and to me, you know, it was really amazing, Julie, because when I, fir- when I wrote my first article, and um, the first article appears in Why Dogs Hump, you know, that dominance is not a myth, I was actually astounded to see an article published that dominance is a myth, because it's not. And so that was my actual first contact, and then I had a whole bunch of people, because I do... Talk to um, people who work with dogs, you know, asked me to address it. So I was kind of incredulous that someone was arguing that dominance is not observed in wolves and there aren't alpha wolves with misquotations of um, David Meech, who's probably one of the world's leading wolf experts. I mean, of course they see dominance and of course they see alpha animals, but it's just not as simple or linear yeah. as people make it.
0: Yeah. And that that's a really great um, lead. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, you know, you, it was a perfect lead into where I wanted to go with this, where, you know, in continuing talking about dominance, control, motivation, all of these things, that it's so important to not overgeneralize and to really, you know, look at each individual context and animal because everybody's different, just like people. So, we're going to continue on with this conversation when we come back. We're talking with Dr. Mark Beckhoff, who's the author of his new book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees De- Get Depressed. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes.
2: Yeah, this is a story of things done. the dog that changes its tail will be busy. Dolls.
1: rhythmic dogs, harmony dogs, house dogs, street dogs, dogs of the world unite, dancing
2: dogs.
3: When your dog or cat is sick, you go to the vet, but sometimes they need more advanced care with a veterinary specialist. Hi, I'm Dr. Beth Davidow with Animal Critical Care and Emergency Services. Veterinary specialists receive more than 10,000 hours of extra training in dedicated fields like radiology, surgery, cardiology, oncology, and more. If your pet is facing a complicated health issue, it may be best to see a specialist. Talk to your veterinarian about the appropriate time for referral. To learn more about access and our specialists, Visit criticalcarevets.com.
0: This is Martha Nurwak. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Jones & Company Pets, we cover the world of animals. This week, December 8th, it's a healing Sunday with our own Dr. Nels. Energetic chiropractor and bioenergetic synchronization technique practitioner, Dr. Nels Rasmussen, joins us in the studio. We'll talk about how he works and have open phone lines. Plan to call in for remote healing treatments for you and your animal friends. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150.
1: Conversations Live with Vicky St. Clair discusses issues that are important to you, like good health and well-being. Finding a new job and building your business. Overcoming life's big challenges and making sense out of chaos. And living with passion and joy. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific for Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. See ConversationsLive.net for show schedule and guest information.
2: Do you have an injury, old or new, that won't heal? Are you fighting a cold or illness you can't kick? Do you feel like you've tried everything and are still struggling to find wellness and balance in your physical health? Have you been unimpressed with acupuncture in the past? For over a decade, Robert Meduzia has been making a difference for people who thought they had exhausted their options. Don't settle for pain and illness. Call 425-828-6190. That's 425-828-6190. Again, 425-828-6190. The Acupuncture and Sports Clinic of Kirkland. Heal faster, play longer. Hey Seattle, this is
0: Julie Forbes. When I got engaged a couple of years ago, one of the first things my fiancé said about our wedding was, we need a wedding planner. I thought to myself, what do we need a wedding planner for? We hired Jenny Harding and New Chapter Weddings, and I now know there is no way we could have done it without her. If you are planning a wedding or corporate event, do yourself a favor and hire New Chapter Wedding and Event Planning. They did an amazing job for us, and they will for you. Find them online at newchapterweddings.com
1: bringing you fresh perspectives every day. Alternative Talk,
2: 1150
1: AM.
0: Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we're back with Dr. Mark Beckoff, author of his new book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. And we were talking in the last segment about um, dominance, and I was saying how I was going through the book, and reading it and, you know, underlining things and, oh, that's interesting. And, oh, we could talk about this and, you know, all these different topics that you reach. And then I got to the part about dominance. I was <laughs> like, OK, we're definitely starting with that one. Um, we were talking in the first segment about how really misunderstood this topic is and how disagreed on it really is in the community of of people when we're talking about working with dogs or, you know, Human dog relationships. Um, so and what I think the biggest thing was that, you know, really what I'm interested in is that people have control when they want it. And like you said, I mean, there's some a lot of situations where that's a safety issue. Like if your dog is wandering off somewhere that they shouldn't go, you want to be able to communicate with them in a way that they understand and listen to To, you know, not do this or don't do that or good, do that again. I loved that. I'd love to see that again. And to have them really understand that, um, you know, is really important. But I think that the thing that people are afraid of is that when we say the word dominance, we think that we have to be like really jerky or militant with the dog or unpleasant or punishing.
1: Right. You know, one thing I wanted to say, too, is that when people study wild animals where there are clear what we would call dominance relationships. There's a real um, benefit to solving any kind of social situation, or you know, any kind of situation where you want to look at relative social relationships as peacefully as possible. Because wild animals don't get veterinary care, and I don't mean that facetiously. You know, yeah. so that's why in the relatives of dogs, like you know, wolves. All the other canids you know coyotes and foxes and jackals for example you see the evolution of these very complex and very clear threat displays and um, displays that show subordinate behavior and appeasement and so once again it's not like you know wild animals are always beating the heck out of one another dominance and there was a very important theory years ago called attention structure and Sky who's studying primates said that the way he looked at dominance was the individual who controlled the attention mm. of other animals and there was actually mm-hmm. i think it was an un- i don't think it's been published but years ago it was an unpublished study of this phenomenon in wolf- in captive wolves, supporting once again that you know. If you pay it more attention to me, you're always worried about where I am or not even worried, but you just want to know I'm dominating your attention. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, you know, the interesting bridge here is to the title, Why Dogs Hump. It's the same. Mm-hmm. It's the same explanation for humping. There's so many different explanations that depend on context. Yeah and that's why actually I wrote the article with one of my colleagues and that's why I loved it for the title of the book because people you know some people are shy and they don't like to talk about why dogs hump or mount and it's the same argument it's contextual mm-hmm. you've got to look at not only the where it occurs but you know who the dogs are and so It just explains something that I'm always interested in in decades of studying animal behavior is that we often don't really know the cause of different behavior patterns. And we need to be careful about saying A causes B or B causes C. Yeah,
0: I sometimes have people ask me about, you know, oh, my dog, um, you know, has a barking problem or my dog's barking. What does it mean? It's like, well, it'd be like asking someone like, you know, this person's talking to me. What is it? What does it mean that they're talking to me? It's like, well, what, exactly. what are they saying? You know, what's, what's right. the context? What, you know, what's going on? What's the tone? There's all sorts of different things. Right. And, I think, and I
1: mean, you know, the study of animal behavior, you know, there's a move to really understanding that, you know, a lot of times animals are behaving in very complex ways. And the reasons they're doing some certain things are not so straightforward. Yeah. And so it just, once again, using, say, dominance and using humping, it's just making clear that we really often don't know something, and we have to be very careful about generalizing. And one of the things, I mean, I know you and your listeners know better than I do from experience, but I've lived with many different dogs and had many different dogs as friends. They all vary. They all have individual personalities, and what applied to my dog, Jethro, it was almost a one eighty from what applied to my dog Moses. Yeah. So to say dogs do this or coyotes do this, it just it's just too simple. Yeah. And stuff. And that, you know that's another reason I I compiled these essays was to show that there's some pretty amazing things going on there in um out there in the animal kingdom.
0: One of the things that I enjoy so much about my line of work is how many. Dogs I've gotten to really know very well in mm-hmm. in working with them. Either trying to resolve uh, behavioral challenges that they might have, and working with their humans on that, or if it's just someone's got a new puppy, or they've just adopted adopted a dog, and they just want to get some you know basic education going. Is that all? Dogs vary as much from each other as people do from each other. Everybody's an individual. There's so many different. Personalities and temperaments, and and you know, there's a genetic component for sure, and different drives. But it's just amazing the personality differences in these dogs. is is really, I liken it to my feel for meeting different people. Some, you right. know, some like in you know, and even with our with my own dogs. I mean, we have two cattle dogs, a lab, and a dachshund, and mm-hmm. they are all very different. And actually, two of them. Uh, The female Dachshund and the male Cattle Dog are both humpers, and I know that they're doing it for different reasons because it's different contexts. And one of them's humping a dog, and the other one's humping a bed. So yeah, um, but yeah, the to not overgeneralize and to recognize, you know, not only as you talk a lot about in your work and in your uh, book before this, the emotional lives of animals, but that you know, dogs do not only feel emotions, but they're very much individuals with personalities and, and feelings. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you talk about is, is um, dogs having you – know, I often say dogs don't get enough credit all the time. <laughs> I say it all the time. <laughs> they don't get enough credit with, how, with their awareness and level of consciousness, and they know what's going on, and they have feelings about it, and I don't know what the thoughts look like because they're not verbal. But um, you said dogs have theory of mind – and what do you mean by that?
1: Well, a theory of mind is an idea that, um, well, I mean, it would apply to human animals, that individuals basically know what another individual is thinking or feeling, and then mm. they may make some predictions of, you know, what an individual will do in a certain situation. Mm. And and so, you know, at, at first it was thought that, you know, only humans, I can, only I, you know, a human or, you know, you know, could know what I'm thinking or feeling or what you're thinking or feeling. And there's been some studies done in captivity where humans will, you know, hide food or they'll do something absent an animal knowing and they'll look at the choices animals make in terms of whether they will go to a can where there is food or not food, you know, trying to answer the questions of do animals know what the humans know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very difficult in captivity to demonstrate this theory of mind, and so some people, based on these captive studies, have said, well, you know, the only animals who have a theory of mind are human animals. My argument in the book and elsewhere is that it's, it's unlikely that we're the only animals that have a theory of mind, and I was looking at... Um, an example say of pack living wolves. They spend a lot of time just hanging out and resting and learning who other animals are, just like dogs do at a dog park and just like we do. And you know, if I knew you well I would know what your most likely response would be, say yeah. in a certain situation. Yeah. And I would just I would make the assumption, Oh my goodness, this is happening, Julie is most likely to do X, Y, or Z yeah. and it's a very efficient way of interacting. And you could apply that same you know patterning to wolves, for example, or other pack living animals, and you'll see this amazing coordination, which, in my opinion, some people disagree, but in my opinion, would be very difficult to explain if these animals didn't have some idea what was going on in another animal's head, yeah. And so, once again, do we know this for certain? No. Does it make sense to postulate that? Yes. And I think in the future we will discover that with really good field research.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting um, that there's a lot of sort of theories and a lot of ideas that people who just, you know, have lived with dogs all their lives would say, of course. (laughs) Right. Of course they do. (laughs) You know, I don't. Personally, don't need a, a scientific study to to prove to me what I feel that I know to be true in my mind and in my heart. But but yet, you know, that's sort of just the way the way of the world with science and 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 really understanding and and recreating and and doing these studies to to really prove this or that. And I thought that was so interesting. I really got a glimpse into the culture of scientists at the sparks conference
1: yeah i mean you know a lot of people embellish animals including dogs and you know i'm just very open about saying a lot of very popular best-selling books on dogs have a lot of myths in them yeah. in order to make these animals you know uh beings who they're not but you know Sometimes dogs make stupid choices just as humans make stupid choices. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing to recognize that. So that's you know, another reason I really wrote the book was to say, look, you know, there's lots of surprises out there. Non human animals, including dogs and their relatives, do very amazing things. And sometimes we think that they should be able to do something that they just can't do. Yeah. And so I think we really need a corrective and I and I think when We apply what we know to dog training or teaching or learning. That's when we're going to get our best results, like, you know, understanding the notion of dominance, understanding what a dog might know about what another dog might know. Yeah. I mean, these are very... these. Well, you know, these are fascinating topics. I mean, my goodness, I've been doing this forever, and I'm just so thrilled that every day my inbox on my email is filled with stories, and, you know, a lot of those stories and a lot of the studies form the basis for the um, essays that I write for Psychology Today.
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to switch gears just a little bit and talk about... Uh, some ideas that I've been thinking about around um, trips to the vet and you wrote uh, some observations that you had with Jethro um, mm-hmm. going to the vet office and how he could sort of tell uh, what, what went on recently in this exam room versus that exam room and, mm-hmm. and his response to that. So we'll get to that. We're talking with Dr. Mark Beckoff, who's the author of Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Got my own
1: dance, the empty dance
0: Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different proteins to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their Burien Shop, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your home. Natural Pet Pantry will even work with your vet to custom blend a prescription diet for your pet's unique needs. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information Natural Pet Pantry, it just makes sense.
3: Hi, I'm Pat Pauly. Tune into my show, Get Active, each Tuesday at 12 noon on Alternative Talk 1150. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about one of the wonderful activities in the Puget Sound region, ones that you may want to participate in. We'll focus on how adult beginners can comfortably get into all of these activities. You'll learn a lot about how you can get active. Be sure to listen. That's Get Active with me, Pat Pauly, at 12 noon each Tuesday on Alternative Talk 1150.
0: This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist, and owner of Sensitive Dog www.sensitivedog.com
1: Listen live at 1150kknw.com Alternative Talk, 1150 AM
0: Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes and of course we're talking with Dr. Mark Beckhoff about his book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed nicely done, as always, Eric, on that song. Uh, So we've been talking uh, on the first half of the show about dominance, and um, if you've missed any part of this interview or any of our almost 250 episodes, you can find them all archived on our website, dogradioshow.com, and also on iTunes as a free podcast. And you can go back to this summer and find my first interview with uh, Dr. Mark Beckhoff about his book, uh, one of his other books the emotional lives of animals. So today we're talking about his newest book Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed and wanted to talk about um one of the parts in your book it's a compilation of essays and you really cover a lot of ground it's very very interesting anyone who's a dog or animal enthusiast would just love this information and and sort of of a uh, scientific mind especially um where you noticed that when you took Jethro to the vet, who is your your dog? Um, and how long ago did he pass away? A few years, was it? Yeah,
1: he actually passed away about eleven years ago. Eleven <laughs> years ago. Yeah, but he's still here because I've got his ashes okay. on my fireplace, covered by his favorite bandana. <laughs> Aww. But, well, um, yeah, he passed away eleven years ago. Oh yeah. well. Yep.
0: Well, he's uh lives on in all of your stories for yes, sure because you mention him a lot. Um. So you you noticed you observed some you were obs- uh, constantly observing his behavior probably but uh, when you took him to the vet and noticed his response where he could really smell basically the stress pheromones you said from animals that had
1: been there earlier. Yeah, he loved going to the vet and he didn't have to go often. And then when he was about oh I don't know eight or so he went through a series of acupuncture treatments because he had um, he just had a bad left elbow. And, you know, he would jump out, and, you know, even with the acupuncture treatments, he didn't mind them. The veterinarian gave him some frozen food that he really enjoyed, you know, working at while she put the needles in him. And one day we got there, and he he went to the back of my um, uh, station wagon. I flipped the door open, and instead of jumping out and wagging his tail and sometimes, you know, going, woo-hoo, He stopped, his tail was tucked, his ears went back, he almost started salivating. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't get out of the car, so I knew something was wrong. So I shut the car and I went in and I asked the veterinarian and the vet was great. She said, yeah, the dog who had just been in the room, um, the treatment room where we had pulled up, had really freaked out and was really disturbed was really, you know, just upset and had expelled some of the group from his yeah. anal gland.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> just so picked it up, you know, you know 50 meters away. Yeah. That and stuff, stuff is so, <laughs> You know, once again, I use that story just as an indication, just like when I taught animal behavior for decades, that animals live in very different sensory worlds. I mean, we know that, but we often forget that, that they – hear better than us, they can smell better than us, they can see better than us, and some can't see as well as us. So we need to be very careful of thinking that what we like, you know, in the sort of smell or sound department is also what other animals like.
0: Yeah, and in your, in your presentation at the Sparks Conference this summer, it, you were talking about empathy in rats and that they sort of saw... It sounded like my memory is saying that it was almost by accident that they discovered this, but that the rats were aware of what was going on to the rats near them and were impacted by
1: it. Right. Um, It was a formal study following up, excuse me, on a study showing empathy in mice and chickens. And, you know, people can go into these studies, you know, they want you know, good scientists keep an open mind about, and you know, we'd hope an open heart about what they're doing, but you know, there was some background that it wouldn't be so surprising whether rats would also display empathy um, for rats in need. And what was unique about this study, and I always say it kind of with a joke, as a joke, is that rats would help other rats in lieu of eating chocolate. And I always say that I'm pretty much a dark chocolate freak. I don't know if I would do that. <laughs> but, but, you know, the bottom line message is, once again, we're learning about compassion and empathy in lots of different animals, not only human animals. And when you think about it as a biologist, it's not surprising that you would see certain behavior patterns in social living animals. Yeah. You know, so once again, it's, yeah, it's just... I mean, I I don't even know how to put it in words, all these fascinating things that we're discovering about other animals.
0: Yeah. Well, the that part in the book made me think about or reminded me of something that I was just thinking about, you know, within the last week, because our dogs went to the vet recently um, just for some routine um, procedures. But I was like, "Uh oh, wait a minute. Because I just hate, you know, I hate have them having to do really anything unpleasant. I'm so protective. But,
1: right. um,
0: you know, but they needed to get, you know, get some stuff done and, you know, whatever. So but I was like, oh, my gosh. And I remembered that, you know, your presentation as I was thinking about this. But I was like, I wonder if at a lot of vet offices where the dogs are held, if they can see what is happening to the other animals who, if they can, if they're within eyesight of, of uh, surgeries or other procedures and they're like, Oh crap, that's what I'm here for. And that's going to happen to me. Like how uh, it seems like it actually could be considered a form of abuse to subject them to, you know, I mean, you wouldn't put children in a room and watch them watch another child in surgery, let, let alone most adults wouldn't be able to tolerate that. And it's something that, for me for how sensitive i am to this just occurred to me about vet offices
1: right i i think what's really really important is also that it you know could be odor or sound as well as sight right there was a situation at the denver zoo about a decade ago where an animal got knocked over got basically died they did the autopsy It seemed like 50 or 100 meters away, Mm. and that really set off the other animals who couldn't see Mm -hmm. what was happening. And, you know, frankly, they may not know, but there was an odor, and, uh, you know, we call it a pheromone. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Yep, yep. So... Yep, it's just very important, you know, um, and, and plus, I think, you know, veterinarians, you know, know this. They're always scrubbing their offices. They're always being, you know, I mean, every time i took taken a dog in, they'd be very careful which room to put Jethro if they knew Jethro versus Moses versus Anook versus Skye. I mean, you know, really, my vets were so wonderful knowing the personality of the dog and knowing that something that wouldn't bother Jethro would have bothered Moses 20 years ago. Yeah, so,
0: yeah. Uh one of the things that you said um uh l- a little off this topic, but that you wrote that I am constantly correcting the autocorrect on the computer when I write <laughs> <laughs> when I write who and then it's like, "Nope. It's got to be that or, you know, it'll underline it in that red or something like that and let me know that it that, you know, I wasn't using the proper um word like for dogs for dogs who do this or that, and the computer's like, no, 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 it's, it's that or which. And that they're not identified as, as, as beings in the same way, not valued in the same way.
1: Right. It's the pronoun. Dogs mm-hmm. are, you know, we really want to refer to them as who, not that or, or, or witches. Mm-hmm. Um, Because they're sentient beings and they have personalities and they're conscious, just like, I mean, I I have friends who refer to, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, Mark, that, you know, Mark who did this, you know, or, or Mark, you know, that guy. And in certain contexts, it's okay, but then they'll be talking about, you know, that person or they'll say, you know, the person that went to the store. Mm-hmm. No, it's the person who went to the store. Mm-hmm. And Pete. you know, linguists get into all these you know, arguments, but once again, words inform thoughts and thoughts inform action. And I think we just really be very careful about it.
0: Well, you talked about this too, um, in, in your book, the about how we'll we'll um talk about animals in a way that makes them feel less personal, like um dairy cows or um, livestock or, you know, as opposed to just calling them the animals that they are.
1: Exactly. And that's why I get into this using the word, using the phrase who we eat or who we wear, not what we eat or what we wear. Yeah. And, you know, once again, I'm not doing it to be contentious. I had an email a couple of months ago, um, probably, what, months after, I, a year plus after I gave a talk in Vienna, Austria, where I just made that comment. And a woman wrote to me, and it took a little while to sink in. I don't mean that as a criticism. You know, we we're asking for some change. And she said, you know, somebody never dawned on me what you were saying, and now six of us have been talking about it, and they've all become vegetarian. Now, mm. that's not necessarily my goal. I mean, it would be nice, but I just wanted them to think very clearly about the words they use to refer to non human animal beings.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're you're such a um advocate for just us really as humans thinking about and having some awareness and and consciousness about what we do to animals, how we treat animals, what we, you know, that that we're using them for this and that really quite recklessly and arrogantly, and not taking into consideration their, uh, their experience, their feelings, what, you know, how is this, oh, oh my gosh, I mean, imagine if, um, I mean, and this even happens, I mean, you know, certainly with dogs, but even more so with animals in this country that we eat um you know and there's so, such a disconnect for for the consumer about you know you, you're if someone's at the grocery store they see a, a piece of meat you know wrapped in plastic and they don't they're not connected to what all happened in order for that to get there and how that happened and how was the animal treated if if someone's going to eat meat is it was it done in a way that is really honoring the animal's existence versus just really being completely disregarding it.
1: Right, because a lot of the way animals are packaged, and I I mean it in many different ways, packaged in food stores or packaged in stories, or, you know, I've got a section in Why Dogs Hump on how the media misrepresents Mm -hmm. other animals. You know, when, when there's a horrible crime or something, you know, humans do something bad, they'll say, oh, they're acting like an animal. Or they'll only report on the very rare situations, say, when a dog, you know, attacks a human, but they won't report on all the millions of wonderful interactions people have. Yeah, And I really, I, I just, I know, you know, some people go, oh, you know, you're just this academic guy. Well, you know, I've spent a lot of years in academics, but I wrote, I write the books I write to get to non-academics, and I want the non-academics to realize that, once again, how we refer to other animals really informs how we treat them. And of course in terms of dog training or teaching or learning, I mean, it couldn't be more true. I watch people interact with other people and then I watch them interact with say dogs and I go, "Oh wow, they interact in the same way." Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can be insulting. They can think that other people are just sort of machines, unfeeling machines. Yeah. And then they just generalize that to dogs. Yeah. Yep. All
0: so. right, well, we're going to take a, our last break and come back with some final conversation with Dr. Mark Beckhoff. We're talking about his recent book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. It's an excellent book. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes.
2: When I walk through that
1: door, baby, be polite. You're going to wiggle my so. If you don't greet me right, don't you ever kiss on me once, kiss me twice, but leave me nice.
0: Hey Seattle, this is Julie Forbes. When I got engaged a couple of years ago, one of the first things my fiance said about our wedding was, We need a wedding planner. I thought to myself, What do we need a wedding planner for? We hired Jenny Harding and New Chapter Weddings, and I now know there is no way we could have done it without her. If you are planning a wedding or corporate event, do yourself a favor and hire New Chapter Wedding and Event Planning. They did an amazing job for us, and they will for you. Find them online
3: at newchapterweddings.com. When your dog or cat is sick, you go to the vet, but sometimes they need more advanced care with a veterinary specialist. Hi, I'm Dr. Beth Davidow with Animal Critical Care and Emergency Services. Veterinary specialists receive more than 10,000 hours of extra training in dedicated fields like radiology, surgery, cardiology, oncology, and more. If your pet is facing a complicated health issue, it may be best to see a specialist. Talk to your veterinarian about the appropriate time for referral. To learn more about access and our specialists, visit critical.
0: This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist and owner of Sensitive Dogs
2: Do you have an injury, old or new, that won't heal? Are you fighting a cold or illness you can't kick? Do you feel like you've tried everything and are still struggling to find wellness and balance in your physical health? Have you been unimpressed with acupuncture in the past? For over a decade, Robert Meduzia has been making a difference for people who thought they had exhausted their options. Don't settle for pain and illness. Call 425-828-6190. That's 425-828-6190. Again, 425-828-6190. The Acupuncture and Sports Clinic of Kirkland. Heal faster, play longer. Natural Pet Pantry is
0: Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different proteins to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, Raw or cooked can be purchased from their Burien shop, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your home. Natural Pet Pantry will even work with your vet to custom blend a prescription diet for your pet's unique needs. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. Natural Pet Pantry. It just makes sense.
1: Radio with no added hormones or preservatives. All natural. Alternative talk. 1150 a.m. (laughs)
0: Cold. I'm really gonna If you don't want me to be Cold
1: as me nice. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're back with Dr. Mark Backoff about his most recent book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed. Um, and in this last segment, I um, wanted to talk about the idea of uh, our tendency as people to make cross species comparisons, one of the probably most common ones in the world of dogs. And I hear people repeat this to me all the time because they came across it somewhere in their reading that dogs are like toddlers. Dogs are like, you know, young dogs are like uh, to, a two year old child is like kind of like a dog. How to, to try to understand what it's like to be a dog. And I can understand the motivation of, of really we're just trying to trying to get in their heads and understand what it's like to be a dog. and But that can get us into trouble to, to not acknowledge them. One of the things that you talk about so much and one of the things you said was a big point in your book and your work is really seeing animals as the animals that they are. Dogs that the dogs as dogs, the cats as cats, the cows as cows, you know the frogs as frogs, and you say you say something about a card-carrying member of their own species.
1: Right. I mean, you know, people like to say, well, chimpanzee. You know, chimpanzees do certain things that two-year-olds do, or you know, two-year-olds do something that you know adult chimpanzees can't do. And as a biologist, I like to say that these. These cross-species comparisons are interesting. They make for interesting press. Um, people use them to generate funds, but I always say that animals do what they need to do to be cod-carrying members of their species. And so, if someone says to me, and you know, I've read this. I think probably I've heard it at Sparks that you know dogs do something, and you know they're like two-year-old uh, humans. Well. They're not two-year-old humans, yeah. <laughs> and neither are two-year-old humans, dogs or wolves or chimpanzees. Yeah. So I understand where the comparison's coming from, but I don't find it to be particularly compelling. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah, yeah. I just don't. It gets back to that question about, you know, what the dogs and other animals sense, you know, like, you know, we were talking about the pheromones that Jethro sensed. It just, it, you know, because Jethro can sense pheromones that I couldn't. Is he smarter? You know, you know, um, you know, because animals can do things, we can do things that other animals can't do. Are they dumber? You know, we can do things, they can do things we can't do. So I I just as a biologist emphasize that when you take an evolutionary perspective on animal behavior, you really need to pay attention to who these animals are and what they need to do in their world, not our world.
0: Right. And I think a great example of this and i wanted to just mention this because it's just an incredible story and i posted a link to this uh youtube video on our facebook page if you just search for the dog show with julie forbes you'll find us on facebook you know as we're talking about the comparison of dogs to two-year-old children um there's the story about a german shepherd who i don't know was wandering loose or stray or something i don't know was just out on his own and came across this woman who had just been in this uh horrible car accident and was sort of thrown from her car and uh partially conscious and he and out of sight from the road and he took her by her jacket and dragged her to the road this dog um t- and i you know it's like well what <clears throat> there could be all sorts of arguments for what happened, but it seems like the most obvious thing would be that the dog was just trying to help the woman. And, and I don't know, in this conversation, I'm thinking, well, a two-year-old child wouldn't do that. So, um, you know, it's such a, and I know I sent you that link and and you saw that um, as well. And it's just a real, it's just so cool to see dogs, you know, really um, functioning in, the, in that way and not only doing something so helpful to somebody and so sweet, but that, the, you know, that it really shows that, if the dog was dragging you know it's like what what was going on in that dog's brain was that dog putting together sequences of well i need to do this so that
1: right i mean you know once again we get back to different ideas people have <coughs> about what animals are thinking is that dog going oh my goodness this woman is injured i need to help her is he picking up you know some Odor, you know, because we know that the dogs who are detecting diseases are using odors. So is that dog picking up a stress pheromone, a stress odor that then clicks in that he needs to change the situation and do something? Yeah. We don't know. I mean, I would be the first person to say we don't know, but I would also say we should keep the door open because there's so many examples in other species of animals helping members of their own species. There's no reason to think they wouldn't generalize across species. Yeah. So I saw that video. I've seen other videos and that was a very compelling video. The dog was motivated to do something. Um, You know, he could have just walked away. He could have, you know, bitten her. He could have done a million things, but he did something. And is it, Part of their nurturing nature, we don't know. Yeah. But I like to say, and I say in um, Why Dogs Hump a number of times, that the plural of anecdote is data. Yeah. And I really mean that. Yeah. If I get a hundred, you know, I published an article about magpies doing a um, grief ceremony, okay. and after I published it, I, I'm still getting emails about um, birds. Doing what we might call funeral rituals. Mm. If I give you know a bunch of stories, it's about time that people study them. So, I could think of different situations where you could set up a nice experiment. It would be non-invasive. It would be enriching for a dog, and see what they do in certain situations, and that'll give us an idea of what these animals are thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I mean I, I. I, it, I'm not an everything goes person, you know. I don't think that any explanation goes in these situations, but I think we need to be reasonable and keep the door open to what would be, you know, reasonable explanations.
0: Yeah, and it's just such an interesting. I mean, you have such a great perspective. Um, you know, just in closing, that you you're, you know, just the whole topic of really our. Fascination with animals, our very complex, in some ways very beautiful, and in a lot of ways very troubled um, coexistence on this planet with other animals. Um, and you say not calling animals animals, but referring to them as other types of animals because we tend to forget that we are also animals yeah. as humans. Yeah. So we're talking with uh, Dr. Mark Beckhoff today. If you've missed any part of this show, you can find it archived on DogRadioShow.com or on iTunes as a free podcast. Talking about his book, Why Dogs Hump and Bees Get Depressed, a great holiday gift for any dog lover or animal lover. It just There's so much covered in this book. It's just amazing. So much we didn't get to. So go ahead and get that book and read it. And uh, we'll be back next Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. live. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes.